Well, here we go again. So hopefully everybody comes back. Um, assignments are up on the board, and that is what I'll typically do each day. Uh, the ones closer to the top are pretty well set. As it gets further down to the bottom, they're subject to change depending on how things go. Uh, typically not pushed earlier. Typically it might mean we just didn't get to stuff for homework to and we need to push it back and it's not due the 30th, it'll be due the next, the next time we meet. So most of them are, most of the top ones will be pretty close. Um, due next week on Tuesday, since we don't meet on Monday, are the extra credit assignment and homework one that I gave out last time. And then quiz one will be up and available starting on Thursday. If you want to take it then, if you want to take it over the weekend, you'll note that it's available through Tuesday. I always will give it through the next day we meet, meaning that I can remind you on Tuesday, did you take the quiz? If not, make sure you take it today because it'll lock out at 6 o'clock the next morning. So when I put a due date as the 28th of May, that means you have through the end of that day to do it. So homework is due May 28th, is due Tuesday. If you submit it at 4 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, it's still not late. As long as it's there by 6 o'clock is counted as the end of the day. But if I try to put the 29th, then I have to try to put that up each time until everybody gets, gets it straight. So that's why I always put it as the day before. So we're scheduled pretty good there. The extra credit assignment, the homework, the quiz will cover chapters 0 and 1 that we're working on right now. And then the exam, the first exam coming up will be chapters 0 through 2. So three chapters worth on each of them, and that will be Wednesday the 29th, the second half of class. Homework 2 I'll be giving out to you uh, before the other one is due, so you at least have the chance to look at it and work on it, but it won't be due. Right now I've put it after, not till after the exam, the day after. I try not to give you too many things due the same day unless they're relatively small. So I try not to give you, you know, an exam on the same day and make the homework due the same day. Doesn't mean you wouldn't want to at least look. Homework 2 will cover chapters 2 and 3. Might be worthwhile to look at the chapter 2 section of it before the exam, but not try to get the whole thing done so you've still got time to work on chapter 3 on it after. So again, it's up to you if you want to do it all after. It's fine, but it certainly wouldn't hurt you to do those first couple questions or look at them before. And I'll give you that out probably tomorrow or Thursday. I try to make sure you have at least a week when I hand out the homework. So I give them out, they'll be due in about a week approximately a week later. And then uh, there's actually a couple quizzes in here, but I jumped ahead just to let you know the first article review is due on June the 3rd. So if you want to start thinking about that, there are links up there that will be available on, I, don't, I think they're in the lesson with the article review, which actually opens up next Monday. So if anybody is really wants them, I can go ahead. If anybody's going to jump ahead, email me and let me know. I'll be happy to open it up earlier if you want to take a look at the articles that I have up. But just so you're thinking that that's something that's coming up here, uh, not next week, but due the Monday, the following Monday on the 3rd of June. So, and what I'll do is I'll just keep updating that for, for the next rest of this week. It'll stay pretty much the same because you're not turning anything in, so I'm not crossing anything off of it yet. But I'll update it as it goes through the semester so you always know what's, what's coming up and any due dates that have changed relative to the syllabus. Questions, questions? Alrighty. Picture of the day for today is the Red Rectangle Nebula. Um, interesting nebula here in that what you see is it, all, it forms a very, you know, almost a butterfly shape there, almost a rectangular shape. So a very unusual shape that you don't typically see in nature. I mean, you don't usually get in, in, in astronomy, you don't typically see these, you know, this X pattern you have here. 
you know, very linear, very uh, stretched out into, an, into a square. You typically see things in a circular patterns or spherical patterns or something like that, all nice smooth edges. And really that's what this is. It is really uh, more, more circular than um, rectangular. It's just the way we're looking at it. If you want to imagine, what you're really seeing are two cones. Two cones of material. So if you can imagine this, if you imagine it three-dimensional, that this actually rotates around in the shape of a cone. Same thing on this side. It's just the way we happen to be looking on it that gives it the projection that we're looking at. And you get this X pattern crossing through it here and here. And it looks like a rectangle. It's just a matter of how we're actually looking at it. Now what it is, is a dying star, essentially. There is a star or actually a pair of stars towards the center. And at least one of them is reaching the end of its life. Something that the sun will be doing in about five billion years. So don't get to worry about it. Don't get out of the final that way or anything. You know, sun's not going to end during the class. But about five billion years from now, the sun will actually do something similar to this. So perhaps some distant astronomer on some other world looking back at us five billion years from now will be able to see another thing like this at our solar system. But as the star starts to die, the sun would expand, or this star has expanded, and it starts to become unstable and the outer layers get pushed out into space. And that's some of what you're seeing here in this cone-shaped material being expelled out. And it's sort of the forerunner to what is called a planetary nebula. And that is what our sun will become again in about five billion years as the outer layers of the sun are pushed off into space and become illuminated by the hot core of the sun that becomes exposed. Uh, at many millions of degrees, that'll be exposed and that actually heats up and energizes the nebula. So sort of something that's coming, this would eventually, if we could watch it over hundreds of thousands of years. Again, nothing we'll ever see in our lifetime. We get all these little snapshots, but we don't get to see you know, one, one thing change, one star constantly go through its entire life. We get all these little bits of snapshots of what a star looks like at this stage of its life, what a star looks like at that stage, but we can't actually watch one change. So it would be like trying to figure out you know, how a human changes by looking at, okay, here's a picture of a baby, here's a picture of a you know, and trying to put everything together. That's about what we're stuck doing. You can't sit there and watch the star grow and mature and die. You don't ha that will never happen just because the time scales are much too long for us. So red rectangle nebula, and that's a Hubble Space Telescope image as well. So questions, comments? Okay. All right. Well, let us get on back on to, we were talking about uh, the phases of the moon. And I kind of rushed that at the end. I'm going to put this back up here for a second. And I got one other thing to show you because this is one that's a little hard to, to see. Uh, just from the diagram here, it's sometimes kind of hard to picture exactly how the phases work. So I have a little animation that I'm going to show you in a minute. But this goes through the cycle of phases, takes us about a month. It's how we get the month. The word month comes from moon. So one cycle of the moon is about 30 days, 29 and a half days. That's how long it takes the moon to go through one complete cycle. And that's what we are seeing as it goes through the cycle of phases. So if you get a chance over, the, over this semester, the six weeks we're here, you know, take a look at the moon. We'll be through about a one and a half cycles of the moon. So you get a chance to you know, see, do you see, can you see any of these different phases? You know, get a chance to see, take a look out there and see, see what, you're, what you're actually viewing. 
and get a chance to see, they actually watch it change a little, a little bit. But what the phases are due to, and let me go back out of this into the animation because I think this is going to help hopefully a little bit more try to explain it. This is a little simulator for lunar phases. So you have a couple different boxes here. The big box there is showing the Earth. There's a little stick figure uh, on the Earth. So standing here, there's the moon orbiting around, going to orbit around the Earth, and the sun is way off in the distance off to the left-hand side there. So it's illuminating the moon, it's illuminating half the moon. Now where we are right now, as it's all designed, half the moon is illuminated. Half the moon is illuminated, and that, but that half is pointing away from us. So what do we see from the Earth? Well, what that observer sees is what we see up here. None of the moon is illuminated, 0%. The moon looks completely dark and we see nothing. So we don't see anything at all from the moon. If we instead looked at full moon, let's jump the moon to the other side, you still have half the moon is illuminated. And now if this observer were on the night side of the, of the moon, of the Earth, what would he see? He would see the moon completely illuminated. We're looking at the entire illuminated side. In between, say, first quarter, let's go back to first quarter, we're here. Again, you're always going to have half the moon illuminated, always the half pointing towards the sun. What we see from the Earth is different because we only see the half of the moon that is facing towards the Earth. And in this case, we would see half of the moon illuminated. As we see up here, 50% of it illuminated. And that would be the first quarter phase. Now the other thing it's showing you here is going to show you, shows you the horizon. So if you were standing here, you're looking from the person's point of view here and looking and seeing the sun and the moon. And in this case you have the sun up here in the sky. The moon is just beginning to rise. So the first quarter moon will actually rise when the sun is at its highest point in the sky. You can sometimes see that you see the first quarter moon during the day. Right? Usually late afternoon it gets up high in the sky as the sun is getting down lower. You can actually see the first quarter moon during the day. Other phases you can't. If I go back to full moon there. Okay. Full moon. Well, there's the sun. Moon you can't really see is down here. So you'll never see the full moon during the day. If you ever see a full moon during the day, something's wrong. It's not possible. Because the only way you can have see the full moon is to have the sun and the moon exactly opposite each other in the sky. So sun setting, full moon is just rising. You can see something pretty close to it sometimes. When it's not quite a full moon, you can sometimes see it just above the horizon. But typically you can only see it at that time. Yes, sir? What about like today? Because when I was coming all the way over here, I could have I saw a full moon in the sky. Okay. Uh, after the sun had risen? It, would look, it could look close to full. And I don't know if I can... Because let's look for example here. Still looks pretty full. Pretty close. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it, for a few days around there, the moon will look full. So, but technically, the actual full moon will be when it's the day of the full moon will only be when when it's exactly opposite the sun. But you can see something that looks pretty close to a full moon. Um, that is about a day. Now there's the full moon right around there at 14 days, so about a day before. 
There's a day before. Can you tell the difference? I sure can't. Get two days before. Right about there. I can see the little bit there, but if I just saw that, would I know the difference? No. You wouldn't be able to tell. So you can see something very close to a full moon that does will be up at the same time as the sun, but that's sort of telling you that it's not quite full. It's either a little bit before full or a little bit past full. So, but you can, you can actually see something very close. But if it is actually the day of the full moon, then it will be exactly opposite the sun in the sky. It will be rising as the sun sets, setting as the sun rises. Now let me go ahead and let this run through a cycle here. You can actually play this and you can watch as this runs through hour by hour the moon slowly orbiting around the earth there and you'll watch as the moon slowly, slow, more and more of the moon becomes illuminated as watched by this observer on the earth. So you've got a bunch of different things to see there. You can see how it's moving around here. The moon is moving around the earth. What our perspective, what we see in terms of illumination. And here you can watch the sun and the moon as they slowly separate from each other. They'll get further and further apart. At full moon, they'll actually be exactly opposite each other as we're coming up towards now, 78%. And you'll see as we get to the full moon phase, they'll actually be exactly opposite each other here, that the moon will be up here, the sun will be completely down. And that's why I say you won't be able to see those two at exactly the same time. Now we have our full moon 100% illuminated and now it's going to start declining, a little bit less each time. And you'll see that the moon and the sun are slowly catching up to each other again. And as we get back around to new moon, they'll actually catch up to each other in the sky. They'll be in the same direction as, of, in the sky. So we're coming up on, it's waning gibbous. We're coming up on third quarter right now. Third quarter technically being only when it's 50% illuminated, but usually you use a range around that, so, you know, because you can't tell any more than you can exactly tell the full moon. You can't really tell exactly when it's 50% illuminated. And as we come back, note that the sun and the moon down here are getting closer and closer together again. And as we get to new moon, they'll actually pass right in front of each other. And there they go someplace in there. And then starts the whole cycle starts all over again. And that's what we'll see each month. So perspective of what you're seeing in the upper right hand side there is what is is what's, that's what we actually view. That's what we're going to see from the surface of the Earth when we look at the moon. And of course, we're running it very quickly. You know, we're running a, an hour every second or so. So we're zipping through it. It doesn't go quite that fast. But you can notice it from night to night. Now you said full moon this morning, right? I didn't actually check the date. So full, about a full moon. If you go and look at it tomorrow and the next day and the next day, you'll see it, depending on exactly where we are, you'll start to see it get to be less and less. So you'll actually distinctly notice less of the moon being illuminated over the coming days. A week from now, you'll be seeing something closer to a third quarter moon. Yeah? When the moon seems kind of red, uh, typically that's when it's low in the sky, usually. Unless it's during an eclipse, that's completely different. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Typically when you see the moon, it's red, it's sort of like the sun at sunset. You see it when it's going through the sky and it's because of the way the Earth's atmosphere scatters the light. Earth's atmosphere is really good at scattering blue light out of the way. So it makes something that was white or yellow actually it tikes out the part, part of the spectrum. It gets rid of the bluer and the blue and the violets and the greens sort of go out of it making it look redder. 
So that's why the sun looks red at sunset, red and orange at sunset. It's still the same color. It hasn't changed. But the Earth's atmosphere is scattering out all that light. Where's all that blue light going? Look up, right? The sky is blue because all that blue light that's coming from the sunsets is now coming from every direction. And you're seeing that. So that help a little bit with the phases? I know just trying to show it in the still image doesn't, doesn't really work well. So I thought the animation might give you a little bit idea, a better idea of how, move, how the earth, moon moving around the Earth and how our perspective changes uh, from day to day. Now, one thing it does show is that you get times where the moon and the sun will be in exactly the same direction. And I'm going to pause that and go to new moon that you have the moon and the sun in exactly the same direction. And that is actually when some interesting events can occur. Don't always because of certain factors that we'll talk about. But sometimes you've got the Earth and the moon, or the moon and the sun in the same direction. That means there's times where the sun could pass in front of the moon. There's also times, if we look at full moon, where the moon can be right behind the Earth. That means the Earth is casting a shadow. And if the moon happens to fall into that shadow, it's going to get dark. The moon is going to disappear. If the moon happens to pass directly in front of the sun, it's going to block out part of the sun or all of the sun, causing what we call an eclipse. And that's sort of our next topic I wanted to lead into with this. So let's jump up to eclipses um, and get here. Let's start with lunar eclipses. So there's uh, two major types of eclipses are lunar and solar. Lunar eclipses means the moon is being, the moon's light is being blocked out. The moon is passed into the Earth's shadow. And it occurs when the Earth falls directly in between the moon here and the sun off in the distance. The Earth, like any other object illuminated, casts a shadow. Right? We cast a shadow if we walk outside it's in, during, this, during a sunny day. We cast a shadow. Well, we have sunlight shining on the Earth. The Earth is blocking some of that sunlight. We see it here. Guess what that means? That means it hasn't gotten all the way through into space behind us because we're here. The Earth is here blocking it. If the moon happens to pass through that shadow, it will block out the light from the sun, which is how the moon is illuminated. Right? The moon doesn't make its own light as the sun does. It actually requires sunlight in order for us to see it. So if it passes directly into the Earth's shadow, then we're not going to be able to see anything. Now we can get a couple kinds of lunar eclipses. You can get a partial lunar eclipse. If part of the moon passes into the Earth's shadow, which might be something like if this is the Earth's shadow, Here, that the moon might be moving up here and might pass here and say that's the moon, we'd see a little portion of the moon blocked out. Rest of it would still be illuminated. Only a portion of the moon went into the Earth's shadow. That would be a partial lunar eclipse. Interesting to see, but because everybody wants to see the total, the total eclipses. The total eclipses are the ones that are really are really nice. A total lunar eclipse just means that the moon passed fully into the Earth's shadow and the entire thing is blocked out. Anyone ever seen a lunar eclipse? No? Usually, I guess, sometimes I get one or two who have had, who've had the chance to see a lunar eclipse. Um, they're, they're relatively easy to see. 
You don't have a solar eclipse is much harder. You've got to be in the right spot to be able to see a solar eclipse. A lunar eclipse, all you've got to be is at the right time and you've got to hope it's dark. It's, it's, it occurs at nighttime for your location, right? If it occurs, you know, when it's at 3 in the afternoon for us, we're not going to be able to see it because the moon will be below the horizon. Maybe if you're off in China, then you're seeing a nice lunar eclipse. So, but what you see as the moon passes into the Earth's shadow, you start seeing a bite taken out of the moon. So you have a nice full moon there. Lunar eclipse can only occur at full moon. And you see a little bite starting to be taken out of it as it moves into the shadow. And more and more of the moon will disappear. It'll take an hour or so for it to do. It doesn't just disappear all of a sudden. It takes a very, very good amount of time. And it will slowly disappear over that time. Now when you get to total eclipse of a moon, you see an image here showing an almost total eclipse. You can see a little bit of the moon still illuminated towards the edge. Hasn't quite reached uh, total yet. You see that the moon actually doesn't completely disappear. It actually turns a very dark red. That's one of the other reasons the moon can turn red. But that's only during the time of a lunar eclipse. And that is because the Earth has an atmosphere. So the same scattering and things that I talked about earlier that allows the light from the, earth, from the sun to actually make it into the shadow. So the Earth's shadow isn't a perfect shadow. It's not blocking out all of the light. You know, if, I hold a, if I hold a block up and block out the light, it blocks out everything. You know, my hand, it's opaque. It blocks out absolutely everything. But there's, a thin, there's an atmosphere around the Earth. So some of that light coming through will get deflected and bent by the atmosphere just like light gets bent through water, right? You've looked at a soda straw, a straw in a glass of water, it, it's all broken and jumbled because it, at the boundaries. Well, it's, the li- it's light just bending. The light gets bent going through the Earth's atmosphere and some of it makes it into the Earth's shadow. Primarily, the light that gets bent is the red light. Much easier to bend that than it is the blue light. So it means that during a lunar eclipse, at, when it becomes total, it'll actually be a very deep red almost looks like a blood red moon. But again, you only see that during the time of a lunar eclipse. You'll also see the moon look a little red if you look at it very low on the horizon when you're looking through a lot of atmosphere. You'll see that same effect as well. So lunar eclipse is when the Earth passes, Earth is between the moon and the sun, blocking out the light from the sun from reaching the moon. And a partial eclipse is when part of the moon goes into the shadow. Maybe only part of it did. The moon went through part of that. A total eclipse is when the entire moon passes into the Earth's shadow. So that would be a total eclipse. And what did I... Okay. Solar eclipse, on the other hand, now we're going to put switch the moon to the other side of the Earth. Okay, Earth and, the, Earth and the Sun don't really change. It's really the Moon moving around the Earth that causes all of this. But a solar eclipse occurs when the Moon passes between the Earth and the Sun. Now, Earth is a lot bigger than the Moon. It's got a lot bigger shadow. So the Moon passes easily can passes into the entire Earth's shadow. And a lunar eclipse can actually take a couple hours. You can watch it eclipse you know, for, more, for, an, for hours. A couple hours that the Moon will actually be totally eclipsed by the Earth's shadow. Solar eclipse, the moon is a lot smaller than the Earth, about a quarter of the size. So its shadow cast is much smaller. So as you see up in here, that shadow will only fall on a very small portion of the Earth. So there's the moon. 
There's the sun. Light from the sun gets blocked out, blocked out and it forms a cone shape. And the tip of that cone will just reach the Earth. You know, few, some number of miles wide area that'll actually get blacked out. This is more. This is a satellite image showing the shadow of the moon on the Earth. So it only covers a very small portion of the Earth. Of the Earth. So. Unlike a lunar eclipse, all you got to be is on the right side of the Earth to see it. So you got about a 50-50 chance, right? It's either light or it's dark. You got a pretty good chance of seeing this. In order to see a solar eclipse, and especially a total solar eclipse, you have to be in the right spot as well. So for where we are right now, you know, we don't have any eclipses scheduled for quite a while. And I'm not just talking here, I'm talking decades or hundreds of years. You know, for maybe the next eclipse that comes through Harrisburg could be hundreds or a thousand years away. There are others that will come through that will be relatively close to us. In fact, there's one, I'll show you the map in a little bit, but there's one in 2017 that goes down south of us a little bit and down through the Carolinas and Georgia area. There's one in 2024 that goes up north of us, goes through like northern Pennsylvania and southern New York State and into Ontario in that area. So there are a couple coming up in, you know, Near future where you can actually think, hey, I've got a chance to see this. You know, if it's 300 years from now, it's like, well, I don't know if life expectancies are going to increase that much in the next few years that I'm going to get a chance to see that one. So there are a couple coming up that'll have a chance, you'll have a chance to see. I'm going to guess if nobody's seen a lunar, nobody's seen a solar eclipse either? Or has anyone? You have seen? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Solar eclipse, at least partial or total, or have you seen a total? Okay. Okay. Unless you made a trip to see it, you probably didn't see a total. You have to get to the right location, which varies. It just you know, happens wherever it happens to be. But yeah, I know I've seen several partial. I've never seen a total myself. So I'm trying to look at, you know, plan on something with my kids. We're going to go someplace for one of these eclipses, and hopefully we get lucky with one of them to be able to actually see a total solar eclipse, because that would be, you know, that's a really a good sight to see. I'm going to show you a video of it here in a minute so you can get to see one. It's still not, not the same as actually being there. So solar eclipses come in three types. So just to be confusing from the lunar where we had the uh, partial and total eclipses, with the solar you can get a total eclipse. Okay, Moon completely blocks out the sun. Now the moon has no atmosphere. So guess what? We don't get any of that light sneaking around the edge of the moon. You know, that's like a big block out there in space. It completely blocks out sunlight. If you ever do see a total solar eclipse, guess what? It gets completely dark. It's like nighttime. So uh, automatic street lights will come on. When it gets that dark, the crickets will start chirping, you know, thinking it's nighttime. And it'll get as dark as night. Stars will come out. You know, it'll, be, it'll be that dark during a total solar eclipse. The moon completely blocks out everything because it doesn't have that atmosphere. You can also get a partial, a partial solar eclipse. That's a lot easier to see. I've seen several of those. That just means the moon has blocked out part of the sun, but not quite all of it. Not near as spectacular as a total solar eclipse. Would still have been you know, a little disconcerting if to actually happen to glance up at the, not know about it, and to glance up at the sky during that time and to see you know, half the sun gone and blocked out. I mean, that would be a little disconcerting. But in terms of noticing it here on Earth, even if half the sun is blocked, you really wouldn't notice it get that much dimmer. It would be, but you wouldn't notice that. You wouldn't just regularly notice that. 
But certainly glancing up at the sun and seeing half of it or a bite taken out of the sun would be disconcerting enough to us. So you can imagine what it might have done to people several thousand years ago. You know, where is the sun going? Is it coming back? You know, someone who didn't have any idea of what an eclipse was. So that's the middle image. The middle image here is the total. So there's the image of it. The moon completely blocking out the sun. You actually see some of the outer atmosphere of the sun that we'll talk about later. But the whole surface of the sun as we see it is completely behind the moon. Partial just means part of it is blocked out. And again, happening to glance up at that when you didn't know it. You don't want to stare at an eclipse, of course, but or the sun in, in general. Really, an eclipse is no more dangerous to look at than looking at the sun. Except for the fact that when you block out a big chunk of the sun, it's just easier to look at, so it's easier to damage your eye. But the sun will do just as much damage either way. Yes, sir? What would be the amount of time that it would be dark? Uh, it would vary from as little as a few seconds yeah. to up to about, I think it's about nine, nine, ten minutes at maximum. It's about as much. So it's not going to be for hours. It's going to be a relatively short amount of time. But that's about the maximum that it will, that it will be dark. Now, the other one we can get is an annular eclipse. Not a yearly eclipse in terms of annular. Sometimes that sounds like a yearly thing. Annular eclipse is referring to an annulus or a ring. Now, the moon and the sun, well, the moon orbits around the Earth. Sometimes it's a little bit closer to the Earth. Sometimes it's a little bit further away. And if you recall, if something's a little bit closer, it seems bigger. So when I stand further away from somebody, I look a little bit smaller. If I come and stand right up next to you, I look a lot bigger in size. The moon does the same thing. When it's a little bit closer to the Earth, it looks bigger. And it's big enough to actually completely block out the sun. When the moon is at its greatest distance from the Earth, further away, and the eclipse happens to occur then, the moon will appear a little bit smaller than the sun in the sky and will not be able to completely block it out. So instead of seeing a total eclipse, you see the moon right in front of the sun and you see a ring of the sun left around it. And that's what we call an annular eclipse. So that will occur, you still need a new moon, but you also need the moon to be at its furthest distance. If the moon is closer, it'll be large, appear large enough to actually block out the uh, sun's surface. If it's far enough away, we won't be able to see that. So here's an example of an image of a solar eclipse. Um, again, you see the solar surface is blocked out. You're not seeing the solar surface here. You're seeing the atmosphere of the sun, the outer atmosphere called the corona. That's always there. You just can't see it most of the time because it's so much fainter than the rest of the sun that if you go out and try to look for it right now without special filters and anything, you won't see it because there's so much overwhelming light from the sun that blocks it out. So, but during an eclipse, you're able to see that outer atmosphere of the sun. So what is going through there, again, is just the three uh, types, reviewing them again. Partial eclipse, if part of the sun is blocked. A total solar eclipse, if we block out the entire thing. And annular, when the moon is just too far away from the Earth in order to see it as a total eclipse. So three different types of solar eclipses that we can get. And let me, before I do this, let me pause here and do the video first because that fits in right there. I'm going to put this up and I'm going to. So now that we've seen, seen an eclipse, 
Not quite, again, not quite the perspective that you get if you were actually there. It would be, it would be much more intense if you were actually there seeing, the solar, seeing an actual solar eclipse. So as I said, you've got a couple chances coming up here in the next 10, 11 years or so. There's a couple chances if you're going to be, you know, all over the U.S. where those, those tracks will be. And I'll show you those in just a little bit. But one of the things I need to go through first is why don't we get an eclipse every single month? Eclipses occur about once or twice a year, uh, typically, but we don't get one every month. Every time the moon is new, it doesn't pass in front of the sun. Not just from our location, but from any location, we won't see that. And that's because when we typically draw the solar system, you like to draw it on a piece of paper, right? You draw the sun and you draw the orbits of the planets around it and draw the moon's orbit around the earth. That's not that far off, really. You're really not drawing something that's that far from reality when you're drawing it on a piece of paper, but it's a little bit off. The orbits are all tilted a little bit relative to each other. The moon's orbit is tilted by about five degrees. So, you know, zero degrees, 90 degrees, you're tilting about five degrees. It's not a whole lot, but it's enough that most of the time, the vast majority of the time, the new moon, the shadow, it's still casting a shadow. It just might fall above the Earth. It might pass below the Earth. If it doesn't strike the Earth, then we're not going to see an eclipse. So most of the time we're going to see, that, see, see it like that. And that occurs the only time we actually get the eclipses when everything is lined up perfectly, which are right along these two that we call the nodes of the orbit. So right here and right here, here when the new moon occurs, it casts a shadow directly on the Earth. Or when a full moon occurs, it passes directly into the Earth's shadow. Here we miss. The moon shadow misses the Earth. The moon misses the Earth's shadow. Same thing on the opposite side. And that's not just at these extremes. That's about, again, that tilt is about 5 degrees. The sun is about half a degree in size. So the vast majority of the time, the eclipses aren't going to work, work out. If everything were aligned perfectly flat, then we would get an eclipse every single month. If the, if the Earth's moon's orbit were not tilted at all, if this tilt were zero, Imagine this tilted down a little bit, then you'd get a, lunar, a, a solar eclipse every single time. They wouldn't be near as rare. They'd still occur at different points on the Earth. You wouldn't see it always in the same spot, but you would see them much more often. They would not be as rare an event as they are. You know, typically, a person can live in one place their whole life and never see a solar, total solar eclipse. Uh, lunar eclipses are a little bit more, a little bit more common. You usually can you'll get a lunar eclipse that occurs every few years that you'll be, able to see, you'll be able to see. But the reason we don't get them is because the orbits are all tilted a little bit. If everything were lined up perfectly, then you'd get an eclipse every single, every single month. Now here are the eclipses coming up from 2010 up through 2030. Um, not all of them. There is an eclipse. There is an eclipse this year in November. But you've got to travel out to the middle of the Atlantic Ocean to see it. Uh, that's actually not an unusual thing. Uh, a lot of the astronomy uh, magazines and things will sponsor eclipse cruises. So they'll sell cruises and you travel out to the path of the eclipse and wait for it. Advantages of that is that at least you've got some advantage in weather that you can move around a little bit if you need to to try to get a better view. Um, not completely, of course, if there's too much there. But this one goes there and then it will cut across right across Central Africa. So your choices to see that one this year are either to take a cruise out to the Atlantic or uh, travel to the central portions of Africa there to be able to see it. The two you see, there's two that crisscross the United States in 2017. 
So goes straight across out here from Washington and Oregon and comes back down through the Carolinas. So any place on that red path is where you would see a total solar eclipse. So that would be wide enough. That would be where the sun would be completely blocked out. Very far north or south on that red line, the eclipse won't last very long. It'll be very short. Towards the middle of it will be the maximum eclipse. So if you really wanted to see this, you can get a detail on it. You can look that up on online and find out exactly where it's going to pass through. The second one is in 2024 and that passes up through Mexico, misses most of the western part of the U.S., but it passed through Texas, uh, St. Louis, um, there's into, into Michigan, Ohio there, and just a little bit north of us into sort of New York, passing through New York State and into southern Ontario. So a couple good chances if you want the chance to go see a solar eclipse and don't want to travel, you know, don't want to be a big world traveler, which of course is great too. There's lots of those there through Indonesia in 2016, Australia in 2028, you know, lots of great ones if you want to travel further. But actually locally, on both of these, we will see a partial eclipse here. So we'll be close enough to see a partial eclipse, but in order to see a total one, you've got to get to exactly where that red line is in order to be able to see it. So eclipses just occur, you know, pretty much they're randomly over the, over the face of the globe. It just depends on the exact orientation and timing of the eclipse as to when, as to when we will see them. So these are a number of the eclipses that are visible. Of course, the Earth's surface is three quarters water, right? So about three quarters of the eclipse tracks are going to be over water. So in order to see them on land, it is a relatively rare thing. You can see how few we get actually over land or over any very specific area over this period of time. You know, there's only a handful of places, and one of them is in the U.S. where you'll actually get two solar eclipses in the period of seven years. You know, if you're right here, and that looks to be right around St. Louis area, you know, they'll actually get two They'll actually get to see two solar eclipses in the period of seven years. Now, that's something rare. You know, rare enough to see one, but here to see two total total solar eclipses in that time period would be uh, very rare. All right, on to distance measurements. So we finish up chapter zero here. Um, one way we use to measure distances is called triangulation. Uh, you may have heard of this. This uses uh, geometry and a right triangle. You measure a position for an object, you know, here across a river, and you measure a position here. You have a baseline, you have an observer here and another observer here, or you move, the observer moves and looks at things from two different positions, measures the angle. We know we have a right angle. We can measure this angle if we can measure the baseline. I'm not going to make you go through the calculations, but we can, do, we can figure out then if you know the two angles and the one side of a right triangle, you can now figure out everything you need to know about it. You can figure out the other lengths. So you can measure how many meters you are across here, and then you can determine the distance to that tree without actually crossing the river. Now that's important in astronomy because in astronomy it's not the river that we have to cross, but it's the depths of space. Something that we're not capable of doing. Certainly if you wanted to, you could get across, we could find a way to get across the river. But in, if we're trying to measure the distance to the sun, how do we get to the sun to measure it? How do we survive getting that close to the sun as well is another good question. But this is one way that we can measure distances here on Earth that actually applies to space as well. And in space it's what we call parallax. 
Uh, it's the same, the same thing as triangulation, except now you're looking at two different points on the Earth. So you're making your baseline as big as you possibly can. Well, if you're stuck on the Earth, how big can you make your baseline? Right? Size of the Earth. If you had one observer over here and one observer over here, it's about as big as you can possibly make your baseline, right? Without leaving the Earth. Well, not technically, I'll show you in a minute, but if you observe here and you look at an object, it's going to look in one position against the background stars that are much further away. An observer at the other position is going to see it at a different position against the background stars. So if this is a nearby object, say the moon, say one of the planets, it's going to appear to shift. Its position will change a little bit. So one observer sees it here, one observer sees it here. That angular distance, the shift, allows us to solve then the right triangles and determine the distance to that object. Now, parallax is something uh, you're probably kind of familiar with. If you ever held your hand out at arm's length and alternated opening and closing one eye, right? Your finger jumps. It's because you're using the parallax of your eyes. You're looking from one location and you're looking from another location. And I can point at something one and if I close the other eye, I'm not pointing at it anymore. That's the same effect here as parallax. Now did I, I don't think, no, I do have to do, I want to do that one more. But this is showing it as using the Earth's diameter. There is something larger that we can use. And this is even pre-space pre age. You're not talking about getting a satellite into orbit. But you can also have, there's the sun, and not to scale, here's the Earth. Here's the Earth's orbit. We can also make observations here, number one. And if we wait six months, now we've moved even further. We're not just looking at the diameter of the Earth, we're looking at the diameter of the entire Earth's orbit. So now we can be able to measure even finer angles. We can use a very large baseline. The bigger the baseline you use, the easier you can measure, the bigger that angle will appear to be. And that angle for measuring the distances to stars is incredibly tiny. If you remember last time, I went through one degree is 60 arc minutes, which is 3,600 arc seconds. Did that last time? Well, the, large, the star with the largest parallax is about three quarters of an arc second. Remember how small? We started with the degree. The moon, uh, moon's about half a degree, so the moon is about 1,800 arc seconds. The angle you're trying to measure is less than 1 1,800th the size of the full moon. That's why we didn't determine this for a long time. It wasn't until the uh, middle part of the 19th century that we were actually able to measure parallax, even with this very large baseline. Now then we're stuck. There's no way to get anything bigger than this unless you put a telescope on Mars, right? Put a telescope on Mars, then you've got a little bit bigger orbit, and you could then measure the distances even better. You could do it even better. You could put some kind of automated telescope to do that. But even with this method, even with using the entire diameter of the Earth's orbit, we are stuck with measuring the distances only to the closest stars. And we're going to see over time that that really becomes a problem in terms of measuring distances because we're using the closest stars. Our galaxy is much, much bigger than that, so we can only measure distances in our, in our own little neighborhood around, the, around, our, around our sun. We can't measure distances to other galaxies using this. 
We need a lot of other methods that we're going to see as we work through the course to see other ways of measuring distance. All right, science and the scientific method, which is a little bit what we're going to do some stuff on today on scientific methods for lab in a little bit here. Um, some ideas of a scientific theory. It has to be something that's testable. So if it's something that you can't test or get, you know, something you can't test, it's not a good scientific theory. So a good scientific theory could be that the moon is made of green cheese. We know it's wrong, but can we test it? Can we go get a sample of the moon, bring it back and check? Certainly we've done that. We've been able to get to the moon. It could be something that's tested. So pre-Apollo missions, you know, it would have been a perfectly legitimate theory. Probably still would have been laughed at at the time, but it would have been something that could be testable. And even then, it must be continually tested. So even a scientific theory, you know, uh, something that's well accepted like Newton's gravity, which actually works in most cases but isn't completely correct. Uh, Einstein's general relativity, which is much better for explaining gravity. They're still continually testing, continually pushing the limits of those theories. So you don't just stop when you get a theory. It has to be continually pushed and pushed to the limits to find out you know, where, does it, where does it break down. Where are we going to learn something else and learn something new? We also like simple theories. Simple and elegant theories are much better than very complicated theories. So we'll see that a little bit in the next chapter when we talk about the motions of the planets and how the motions of the planets were understood. Um, when we had the Earth at the center, it ended up with a very complicated model. It worked. You could predict the motions of the planets just fine with it. But it, wasn't, it didn't meet the simple and elegant rules. Aren't absolutely required, but this is what they really should be. A scientific theory can be proven wrong, but you can never prove it completely right. You can verify it. You know, this experiment confirms that you know, Einstein's relativity is correct. Does it prove it absolutely right, or is somebody you know, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years from now going to find a case where, guess what, Einstein's theory breaks down? It doesn't completely work. So we can prove something wrong. The moon is made of green cheese, right? Go get a sample of a moon rock, take a bite of it, and break all your teeth. Right? Okay, now guess what? You just disproved, your th- you just disproved that. That one was proven false. Then you want to go back, if that's the case, then you want to go back and modify your theory. So you don't want to just stick with your theory. Maybe you want to make, some, maybe you want to make a new prediction based on your new, uh, on your new observations. You made new observations. Now we want to make a new prediction or adjust our predictions. So we can adjust the theories as need be, too, based on our new observations. Maybe we find something new. Maybe it's something else that we want to find out that the moon was made of. In terms of being testable, I used the green cheese one for the moon as one example. Something that would not be a scientific theory, keep Einstein in it, would be that Einstein is the greatest scientist in history. Can you test it? You know, there's no, is there any way to prove that it's Einstein and not Newton or not, so, you know, not any other scientist? It's, not, it's, it's a matter of opinion. It's like trying to judge the greatest artwork in history. You know, someone's going to like it. Someone's going to hate it. You know, someone thinks that Einstein, well, someone thinks that someone else did a little bit better. There's no way to physically do a test on it. Other things you can test. You know, what is the moon made up of? Well, we can go get samples of the moon and make a test of it. There are ways to do that. So what this really does, a scientific method is really a cycle. Make an observation. Something happens. You see, something, you see something occur. So your theory becomes why does that thing occur? Why is it happening? Okay? Observation is a simple fact. 
You know, the sun rises in the east, right? There's, no, there's not debate over that. The sun is rising in the east. We can see that every single day. The theory can be, why is the sun rising in the east? Is it the earth rotating? Okay, that would cause it. That would cause the sun to rise in the east. Or is it the sun moving around the earth? They're both perfectly legitimate theories. And each would make different predictions about other things that we would see. So these theories would make predictions. For example, if the Earth is moving, we should be able to detect parallax. We should be able to detect the parallax of the stars because the Earth is going from one position to another position. We should be able to watch stars shift their positions. The, if we say that the Earth is staying at the center and the Sun is moving around it, that makes a prediction that says you shouldn't be able to see parallax. The Earth isn't moving. The Earth is sitting here at the center now and not moving. So you're not going to see any parallax at all. So then you go to observations. You go back again and make this complete the cycle. Make the observation and you know, can we observe parallax? Well, one of the reasons that people thought the Earth was at the center of the universe for so long was that this was never observed. It was just too small of a number to actually be able to be observed. So it wasn't until the 1800s that we actually measured the first parallax and confirmed that yes, the Earth is moving. So it's only been you know, less than 200 years now since we made those first observations to really show that the Earth has to be moving. There were certainly lots of things earlier that suggested it, those hundreds of years since the times of Galileo and the Renaissance that suggested that the Earth was moving. But in actually having some physical evidence that could say for sure that the Sun, that the Earth was not stationary at the center, we did not have. So, and then you'd make modifications. So whatever you'd make, you'd make an observation, you'd adjust your theory. So in terms of planetary motion, you'd predict the Earth is at the center, it would predict the planet would be at a certain spot at a certain day. Your observation, it's off a little bit. Maybe it's only off a little bit. It's not completely prove your theory wrong. And you can adjust your theory and say, well, maybe it's the, the orbit is a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller. And you can continually make those adjustments to refine your theory. So sometimes you make adjustments. Sometimes you get something that's so out of whack that you have to completely throw out your theory and start all over again. So let me finish up with a little summary here. Um, sort of just what I went through over the course of, the, of this uh, chapter. What astronomy is, studying, studying of everything in the entire universe. We mentioned the celestial sphere as a way of describing locations on, uh, in the sky. We mentioned the ecliptic, defined the ecliptic as the plane of the Earth's orbit around the sun. So that's the Earth's orbit or the pa apparent path the sun seems to take in the sky. The reason for the seasons is that the Earth's, Earth's axis is tilted. If the Earth's axis were not tilted, if the Earth were orbiting with the axis pointing straight up and down, we would not get seasons at all. It would be you know, springtime all, all year. The, the more the, Earth, if the Earth's axis were tilted more, then we'd get even more extreme seasons. We get a bigger difference between summer and winter. The moon does not produce its own light, but shines by reflected sunlight. And we've looked at the phases of the moon today. Um, we talked about the solar and the sidereal day and the differences. Sidereal day is how long it takes the Earth to really spin on its axis, 23 hours and 56 minutes. The solar day is what we use today, tomorrow. That's a solar day. And that is not, though you're not exactly the same, they're off by about four minutes. 
because the Earth is slowly revolving around the Sun. Same thing with the months. The months are not the same. There's a synodic month and a sidereal month. Synodic is relative to the Sun, the phases of the Moon. The sidereal month is how long it really takes the Moon to go around the Earth once. They're different by about two days. And again, it's because the Earth is revolving around the Sun at the same time as the Moon is orbiting around it. We've got multiple years. You know, time, gets, time can get very confusing. Trying to figure out the tropical year and the sidereal year. Sidereal year is how long it really takes the Earth to orbit around the Sun once. But because of precession, that's a little bit off from the tropical year. So that would be a little bit different, the tropical year being what we typically use. And then today we talked about distances, measuring through parallax. We'll look at a lot more distant types of measurements, di different types of measurements of distance coming up. We talked about eclipses. They occur when the alignment is perfect between the two objects. And only, not don't occur every time because everything's tilted a little bit. Not a lot, but five degrees. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of a tilt, right? But when you have things that are only half a degree in size and you're tilting things five degrees, you can easily be way up above that or way down below that. And that's why most of the time we do not get an eclipse. Scientific method, sort of what I finished up with here. Make an observation, make a theory. That makes a prediction, observation. It's never ending. So no theory is, is ever fully settled. Gravity we're still working on, right? Newton's is great and I'll talk to you about Newton's law of gravity coming up in the next, next chapter, but it's wrong. It's not correct. It's not how things work. Our best as assessment now is general relativity. I'll talk about that a little bit too, but not near as much, near as much detail. That gets a little more complex. For most of what we use, Newton's law works fine, so we still use it. It's not that it doesn't work at all, but it's not perfect. And probably at some point Einstein's will be found. There's something, there'll be something found that will supersede that. So we're done, down one chapter. One chapter in less than two days. Yay. Of course, it's going to be like that. So, Any questions?